0: Tonight we're continuing in our series through Isaiah chapter 40, and please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8.
1: Isaiah 40, verses 6 Oh God, speak now your word to us, impress it upon our hearts
0: by your Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds to understand what is written here. I ask for your help as the preacher, for I'm a weak man, and Lord, we ask your help, all of us, in the hearing, for Lord, we need your spirit to minister
1: things to us that are spiritual. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we're continuing in our series tonight through
0: Isaiah chapter 40. And the theme of the whole chapter, as I mentioned last week, is the comfort that God speaks to his people. That's evident in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And he, Isaiah 40 continues along this theme. The whole chapter is about the comfort that God speaks to his people. Tonight we're looking at verses 6 to 8. And in verse 6, Isaiah receives a mandate to cry. Not cry like weeping or shedding tears, but cry like proclaim. Isaiah is not merely to suggest, nor is Isaiah to share, or address, or teach, or instruct. The people merely, Isaiah, is to proclaim with an earnestness, with a vigor, with an intensity that befits the message. I personally don't make as much of the supposed difference between preaching and teaching as some in the Reformed world do, and my rationale is that you can't preach without teaching. Preachers ought not to be just a bunch of loudmouths who are fired up and excitable and talk and talk but they have nothing really to say of any substance preachers need to communicate substance they need to teach and so i don't make as much of a distinction between teaching and preaching as some do however i do acknowledge that some distinction is to be made we've all heard preachers who are more teachy than preachy if i can put it that way and we've all also likely heard preachers who when they're finished You feel like you're just gripping the armrests of your seat, and you feel just like something really powerful has happened, and you think to yourself, wow, that man can preach. Isaiah is called here in Isaiah 40 to preach, cry. Lloyd-Jones famously defined preaching as logic on fire. That's what Isaiah is called to do here. He's to reason with the people. To teach them, but he's to do it as a man on fire. And what is the substance of his message to be? What shall I cry? He asks in Isaiah 40 and verse 6. And essentially, the substance of his message, the answer comes, is this, and I'm paraphrasing verses 6 to 8 Earthly helps are like grass, here today and gone tomorrow. But God's word is a sure and lasting hope. That's the big idea that Isaiah is to proclaim, the big idea that Isaiah is to cry. So let's consider first here the comparison of flesh and grass. This comparison runs through all three verses of our text. In Isaiah six, uh, pardon me, Isaiah 40 verse 6, we read, "All flesh is grass." In verse 7, we read, the people are grass. And in verses 7 and 8, we read, the grass withers. So what's the obvious but unstated conclusion? If A, people are like grass, and B, grass withers, then logically it follows that people wither. People are like the grass of the soil. The flower of the field. They are not very strong to begin with, and they wither and fade. Remember that the context of Isaiah's whole ministry really is that Judah was perpetually inclined to seek safety and security in political alliances with the nations around them instead of in God, who had promised to be the protector of his people if they would but look to him. As mentioned last week, first it was Assyria, and then it was Egypt, and then it was Babylon. In 2 Kings 16 and verse 7, we read that Judah's king Ahaz cried out to Assyria for help. Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. But that didn't work out well in the long run. Listen to 2 Chronicles chapter 28, and verses 20 and 21. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Syria, came against Ahaz and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. So the Jews began depending on the Egyptians. We know this from several passages of scripture. Consider, for instance, Isaiah 36, verses 4 and 6, in which the Rabshakeh of Assyria, a military officer, lays siege to Jerusalem and says, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Not only does the Rav criticize the Jews for leaning on Egypt, but so does God. In Isaiah 31 and verse 1, We read God saying through his prophet, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So Assyria and Egypt have each in times past failed the Jews. And now Judah turns to Babylon. We read last week from Isaiah 39 that Miradach baladan the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present for Hezekiah because he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. Here was Babylon now, after Assyria and Egypt had let down Judah Here was Babylon now, a rising superpower, sending gifts, signaling friendship and help to Judah. And Judah, as we read, welcomed them gladly. This was the context in which Isaiah ministered. He was calling the people of Judah away from these sorts of political alliances and confidences and urging them to trust in the Lord instead. And so in Isaiah chapter 40, The prophet utilizes a comparison between flesh and grass to make his point. The thrust of Isaiah's point in Isaiah 40, verses 6 to 8, is that all of Judah's allies, in spite of their pomp, splendor, and earthly power, are just grass in God's eyes. The technological innovations of the Assyrians, the pyramids of Egypt, the hanging gardens of Babylon, grass. Look at verse six of Isaiah 40. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The great kings, Tiglath-Pileser, Sargon, Sennacherib, Nebuchadnezzar, and the many pharaohs whose names I cannot pronounce and won't try, grass. Even their armies, The Assyrian army in all its might, the Egyptian army in all its might, the Babylonian army in all its might, marching out in numbers or riding out on horses or in iron chariots, devouring
1: other nations who stand in their way. In God's eyes, grass. If you were up against an enemy, perhaps an intruder into your
0: home in the middle of the night or you get jumped on the street or something and let's say you have a moment to arm yourself with a weapon of your own choosing it's an imaginary situation so let's say you have options there you certainly would not choose grass or flowers given the option between say a gun a sword flowers you would certainly not choose to arm yourself with flowers grass and flowers are actually about as far from weaponry as you can imagine. In fact, on the American scene in the late 1960s and early 70s, flowers became a symbol of nonviolent pacifist protest against the Vietnam War. You will recall that terms like flower power and flower children were used as descriptors of this movement. When you hear Flower Power, for example, if you found a company in the yellow pages of the phone book named Flower Power, you would not imagine it to be a private security firm supplying bodyguards and surveillance around your house. When you hear Flower Power or you saw a company in the yellow pages listed as Flower Power, you wouldn't assume that it's a manufacturer of guns and other weapons. When you hear flower power, you don't think of a Navy fleet or air force. And God is essentially saying to the Jews in Isaiah chapter 40, verses six to eight, that all you've got in Assyria, all you've got in Egypt, all you've got in Babylon is flower power. The armies of Assyria and Egypt
1: and Babylon are just flower children in God's eyes. And it's the same with all of our saviors, but Yahweh. Who
0: or what are your Assyrians? Who or what are your Egyptians? Who or what are your Babylonians? What are you tempted to look to, or who are you tempted to look to in the place of our triune God for safety and security? Some look to money or a job, but these are grass. Some look to a certain person, a parent or a spouse, but these are grass. Some look to an institution like the government, or even the church but these in and of themselves are also grass what is it in your life that makes you confident that if you have it you'll be okay as long as blank is with me i'll be okay
1: let me tell you something that is really quite sobering if you think about it you and all your loved ones will eventually die
0: your money will eventually be worthless. Everything that you ever accomplished in life will be meaningless eventually in terms of this present world. When you let the passage of time progress far enough, there is actually literally no hope of preserving anything about you or your present life. In one year, if you, even if you die today, Let's say you have a heart attack tonight and you die. One year from now, there would still be a remaining visible mark on this world that you have left. That's probably true even of 20 years or 50 years. Loved ones who have gone on to the other side, who died maybe 20 years ago or 50 years ago, perhaps there's still some remnant of them, some relic, some memory, Of their time here but what about a hundred years or a thousand years or ten thousand years I believe that the earth is much younger than myself but some argue that the earth is 4.5 billion years old if the earth continued say another 4.5 billion years before the return of Christ Do you think there would be any remaining mark that you have left on this world? Certainly not. What I'm trying to get across to you is that if you let the passage of time progress far enough, in terms of this present world, you and everything about you will literally be gone and irrelevant. In fact, Never mind 4.5 billion years or even 10,000, it is most likely that your great grandchildren won't even know your name. To demonstrate this, just consider yourself and ask the people around you Do you know the names of your grandparents' parents? How many of the eight of them do you know? The vast majority of people do not even know the names of their direct ancestors. This is an illustration of what God means when he calls even the mighty armies of the world grass. No one today is afraid of Tiglath-Pileser. Kids might be afraid that monsters are under their bed or in their closet, but I've never heard a kid nervous that Tiglath-Pileser, the ancient king of Assyria, is lurking in the shadows. Or Sennacherib. Or even in more recent memory, someone like Hitler. No one is afraid of these men anymore, even though, even though in their heyday, they were relatively powerful men. The mightiest men in the world rise and fall along with their armies and their legacies. Given a long enough span of time, literally nothing that you trust in and literally no one that you trust in will last given a long enough span of time. This is the first aspect of Isaiah's message. All flesh is grass. Surely the people are grass and the grass withers,
1: the flower Faith. Don't hope in grass, therefore.
0: Don't arm yourself with flower powder. And that brings us to the second aspect of Isaiah's message. The word of our God, he says at the end of verse 8, will stand forever. The contrast being developed in Isaiah chapter 40 is between that which is not worth trusting in for security and safety, on the one hand, and that which is worth trusting in for security and safety on the other hand. And in contrast to the soil and the flower of the field, pardon me, the grass of the soil and the flower of the field, the word of God stands forever. In contrast to that which withers, there is something which stands forever. In contrast to flower power, As the book of Hebrews tells us, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. We've heard the saying, the pen is mightier than the sword. Let me adapt that for our purposes tonight. The pen of the apostles and the prophets is the sword. It's obvious That Isaiah's contrast is intended to help us see that the word of God protects us and offers us safety that nothing and no one else ever could. That's the thrust of what he's doing in comparing Assyria and Egypt and Babylon with the word of God. It's better to have the word of God than it is to have even the armies of Babylon. This raises the question, though, in what manner does the Word of God offer us safety and security? For the ancient Jews, the answer was found in the terms of the Old Covenant. In holding fast to God, the Jews were offered literal, physical protection from the nations around them. I would remind you of the promises attached to obedience in the Old Covenant which we examined a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy chapter 30. For our purposes tonight, I would direct your attention to Deuteronomy 28, part of the same discourse. Specifically, Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 7, which read as follows. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord, your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come against you one way and flee before you seven ways. If Judah held fast to the word of God, believing its promises They wouldn't have to fear the Assyrians or the Egyptians or the Babylonians or anyone else. If Judah held fast to the word of God, believing its promises, they wouldn't have to enter into the various political alliances, which they did, for God himself would have been their protection. In this way, the word of God would have been a sword in their hands far superior to the flower power of the armies around them. Look back at Isaiah 40, verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it.
1: Surely the people are grass. In this way, The word of God would have been a better help to Judah
0: than the political alliances that they formed. In this way, Judah should have understood the contrast that Isaiah sets up between the nations as grass and the word of God as an abiding help. But how are we to understand the word of God as a better, more lasting protection than anything else? After all, we're not under the old covenant, and neither Canada, nor Barbados, nor any other nation in the world is promised the same geopolitical protection for obedience as the ancient Jews were promised under the old covenant. To apply this passage properly to us, we need to consider first what our need of protection is ultimately from. Do you ultimately need to be protected from financial ruin? Do you ultimately need to be protected from physical assault or suffering? Do you ultimately need to be protected from a geopolitical shift in which you become the vassal of a foreign power and your liberties are infringed upon? None of the above. None of those are your ultimate needs of protection. What you, And what even the Jews of old ultimately needed to be protected from is sin. Both the guilt of it and its corrupting effect. The old covenant promises of protection were intended to be something of an object lesson to the Jews. If God could be trusted to protect them from world powers... Surely they could trust him also in the sphere of religion with their very souls. This was always the end game of the old covenant that the Jews would see in earthly, temporal, tangible ways the blessedness of life with God and the bitterness and misery of life lived in unfaithfulness and disobedience toward him. And consequently, and God would have not merely their animal sacrifices and their tithes and their lip service, but their hearts. The new covenant has stripped away the object lessons and the outward types and shadows and has cut straight to the substance to which they pointed. There are no longer promises of protection from lesser temporal things. But there is an ironclad promise that you are eternally and ultimately safe with God. Sin and death and the misery that they bring will not have the last word for anyone who gives over their heart to God. We are protected from the wrath of God to be poured out upon this world on account of sin by trusting in God himself as he has revealed himself to us in his word instead of seeking safety and security anywhere else as the Jews of old sought safety and security in surrounding nations. I asked you earlier, who or what are your Assyrians, your Egyptians, your Babylonians? What are you tempted to look to Or who are you tempted to look to other than our triune God for safety and security? What is it in your life that makes you confident that if you have it, you'll be okay? As long as blank is with me, I'll be all right. God, through the prophet Isaiah, speaks to us today, saying that all other hopes are like grass but the word of our God stands forever. We don't claim Isaiah 40 to mean that the word of God protects us from foreign nations or from the coronavirus or whatever else, but we do claim that the word of God protects us from what we most ultimately need to be protected from, sin both its guilt and its corruption. True safety from the guilt and
1: corruption of sin is found in trusting God's word. The circumstances of
0: Isaiah 40 are analogical to ours. We are in great peril, unable to save ourselves, and with false hopes all around us. But God calls us to believe his word that he himself will rescue us. He himself will deliver us if we will but look to him. Our money won't save us. Our families won't save us. Listen, even our churches will not save us. Certainly no other God will save us. The only hope, the only real hope is to be found in believing the word of our God concerning this great salvation. Let's consider then what the word of God says, promises to us concerning safety and security in God. First, let's review the danger that we're in. Because some might think that we're actually not really in that great peril, as the Jews of old were in peril from the uh, impending siege of Jerusalem that was coming upon them. But we are in grave danger. Let's review the danger that we are in. In the beginning, God created Adam and placed him under his law, which included a prohibition not to eat from a certain tree. And I think we all know the story. Adam ate and became both guilty and corrupt. And Romans 5 teaches us explicitly that when Adam sinned, he acted in a public capacity as a representative of others. He didn't merely plunge himself into guilt and corruption, but all whom he represented, namely the whole human race. Listen to Romans chapter 5
1: and verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And
0: so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are sinners. We die. We are counted as having sinned because Adam sinned. That's what the Bible teaches us. And as Pastor Chris mentioned this morning, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve to be paid, what we've earned for sin, is death. Can we rescue ourselves? Nope. Just like the people of Judah in ancient times could not rescue themselves, we cannot rescue ourselves either. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags in God's sight. Consider now secondly what the word of God says about the work of Christ. According to Romans 5:18 and 19, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification. And life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. When Jesus lived righteously and then bore the wrath of God upon the cross, it wasn't for his own sake. As the scripture says, he committed no sin. Why his death on the cross then? Why did he even leave heaven to take on flesh and live a righteous life? In order to act as Adam did in the beginning, as a representative, to act in a public capacity as a representative for others. Again, here, Romans five, 18 and 19 as one trespass led to condemnation for all men that's Adam's work so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men that's Christ's work as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners that's Adam's work so by the one man's obedience
1: the many will be made righteous that's Christ's work Thirdly now, consider what
0: the word of God says about the results of Christ's work. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Romans chapter 10 and verse 11. Everyone who shifts their confidence away from themselves or anything else,
1: anyone else, to place that confidence entirely on Christ will
0: not be ashamed of that decision. It won't prove a false hope. Romans 10 goes on to say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, will be saved. And this raises the question, saved from what? In John 3.18, we read that whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already. We are saved from the condemnation that we're all naturally under by default because of Adam's sin. And we're saved from the compounding punishment that we heap up by our own sin. Ephesians 5 and verse 6, after listing a sampling of sins, says, by, because of these things, The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In Adam, we are guilty. We are corrupt. We are going to die. We are going to burn in hell because of Adam's sin and our own sin on top of it. And we can't rescue ourselves. And no one else can rescue us. We ought not to look for an Assyria. We ought not to look for an Egypt. We ought not to look for a Babylon. All flesh is grass. There is no other hope. It's all flower power. But by faith in Christ, we are saved from God's condemnation, the wrath of God that is otherwise upon us because of the guilt of sin. And Acts 13, 38 and 39 teaches us that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, Jesus again, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So not only is there forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ, but there is freedom. And again, a question arises, freedom from what? The verse simply says, everything that you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. But what is particularly prominent in Scripture is freedom from our bondage to sin. That is our corruption. You'll remember that Adam rendered us not only guilty, but also corrupt. So we need forgiveness from sins and also freedom from sin. The law of Moses couldn't offer us either one. Freedom from sin's guilt or freedom from sin's corruption and nothing else and no one else can. All flesh is grass. But Jesus offers both forgiveness for sin and cleansing from it. In view of all this, truly, safety and security is to be found in the word of God. And in the word of God alone, as opposed to anywhere else or in anyone else. Everything else is flower power, so to
1: speak. But in believing the promises of God, we find a sword, if I may borrow the language of the author to the Hebrews. In
0: believing the promises of God, we find a sword sufficient to protect us from both the guilt and the power of
1: sin unto eternal life in and through Christ Jesus. The word of God, therefore, provides comfort for God's people. Let us stand comfortably on the promises of God.